0: hard to believe that you can make good money doing what you love while making the world a better place. I feel you. My name is Eden, and I'm a holistic business coach who spent years in nonprofits believing things like money is the root of all evil and trying to spiritually bypass capitalism before my desire for comfort, freedom, and stability outweighed my attachment to my limiting beliefs. See, after years of helping myself and many, many clients create profitable, regenerative feeling businesses that honor our spiritual and material needs, I launched New Money Social Club to give the very best coaching, community, and strategy for. Aligned, abundant growth. To believe it, we've got to see it. So, this podcast centers the stories of diverse entrepreneurs who are daring to live, work, and create on their own terms in the spirit of a mutually flourishing, equitable new economy.
1: Welcome, everybody, to today's Founder Talk with the one and only Kelly Wagner. A creative, kind-hearted Pisces, a fellow baby animal enthusiast, a mental health advocate, a diversity, equity, and inclusion thought leader, a cool-ass surfer chick, and the brave badass founder and CEO of Collective a DEI Lab, which is a modern DEI company, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, that's helped hundreds of brands like Spotify, Bombas, Taco Bell, and more become a bit more values-aligned, equitable, and inclusive. Not just on the surface, but by actually centering the experiences, solutions, and perspectives from the most marginalized folks in each org. I'm Eden, and I'm the creator of New Money Social Club, which is a membership platform that helps purpose-driven people heal their relationship with money and marketing so they can build profitable, sustainable businesses. And it is my honor and pleasure to hold this brave and unfiltered space for all of us today. So before I started New Money Social Club, I partnered with Kelly and Collective as head of growth for a few years, where I helped and witnessed really them catch this massive tidal wave of growth in the pandemic and subsequent racial justice uprising. When I first partnered with Kelly, it was just her and one full time employee. Hey, Samira, if you're here. Um, and she cre- had created this brand that stood out from a sea of kind of like aged and corporate DEI companies, as well as the more social justice oriented ones. Based on Kelly's lived experiences as a woman of color in tech and her strengths as a creative, Kelly formed a modern, integrity driven brand that excited companies to want to do this work. I shared the longer story in an email, and we'll cover some of it today, but Kelly and Collective have a hell of a story. To follow the surfing metaphor, a huge tidal wave came, bigger than anything anyone could have ever imagined, and Kelly was left to figure out how to catch it, how to build and grow a team overnight, equitably and inclusively to the highest standards, by the way. And then after that massive wave of demand retreated, how to try to save and sustain not only herself and the company, but the people that she hired and brought on in the first place. Kelly's learned a ton of lessons on this journey, and I've had the honor of learning a lot of them alongside her. She's not perfect, and guess what? No one is, but at least she tries with everything that she has again and again and again. And in the entrepreneurial world, to me, that is perfection. So as fellow Brene Brown fans, Kelly, to me, embodies this quote more than anyone I know. I want to be in the arena. I want to be brave with my life. And when we make the choice to dare greatly, we sign up to get our asses kicked. We can choose courage or we can choose comfort, but we can't have both. Not at the same time. Vulnerability is winning or losing. Or, I'm sorry, vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. Vulnerability is not weakness. It is our greatest measure of courage. A lot of cheap seats in the arena are filled with people who never venture onto the floor. They just hurl mean-spirited criticisms and put downs from a safe distance. The problem is when we stop caring about what people think and stop feeling hurt by cruelty, we lose our ability to connect. But when we're defined by what people think, we lose the courage to be vulnerable. Therefore, we need to be selective about the feedback we let into our lives. And for me, if you're not in the arena getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. And so I am very interested in Kelly's feedback. And I hope that all of y'all are too for this very reason. So without further ado, welcome, Kelly Wagner. Um, I'm going to pass you the mic in a second and kind of well, yeah, I'm I'm going to go ahead and jump into your first question and give you a chance to kind of like say whatever you want as well. But um, the first question is kind of deep and so deep breaths here, but, um, you know, you've had a hell of a journey and I'm curious if you feel comfortable sharing just a bit about your upbringing and what were a few key moments or turning points in your life
2: that shaped you? Um. Well, first of all, thanks, Eden, for that really beautiful introduction. Um, That quote, I mean, wow, that, thank you. It's super humbling um, to be associated with that quote, but also I was like already getting a little teary-eyed and forewarning, I am such a feeler. (laughs) I'm such a Pisces. I cry about everything. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I will cry at some point today. I haven't made it past a Zoom meeting without crying in some way. but yeah, a bit about my upbringing. Um yes, I have had a little bit of a wild upbringing. I you know, I think when you are a kid like all you know is what you know. Um and honestly like I don't think until like maybe the past couple of years did I really kind of understand the depth of sort of what I had experienced as a child and how unusual that was, but um a little bit about me um I am biracial. My dad is white. Um, My mom was black. And so, and they had me really young. My mom was 19 when she had me. She had me when she was in college. And um, I lived with her until I was about seven. And even in those first seven years, I think one of the things that has really shaped me is that because she was a college student um, and sort of, you know, figuring out her career and in early moments of her young adulthood, we moved around a lot, even before, um, from like the age of zero to seven. And so we lived in Ohio where she started going, where she went to Kent state. Um, and then we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, and then she met my stepfather and we moved actually here to Los Angeles. And so Um, I even in those first seven years kind of went from like rural Ohio to South Central L.A. Um, And and then when I was seven, um, my mother uh, got pregnant with my sister and late into her pregnancy, she ended up having a stroke, an aneurysm. um, And my sister was delivered, but she ended up passing away. And that kind of like threw my life <laughs> into um, chaos. Uh, my dad was in the military at the time and like head uh, was overseas. And so I kind of that started like this um, path of being kind of passed from family member to family member throughout the rest of my um, childhood. And so I lived with my grandmother. Two single men, old white men, um, in an all white working class um, suburb of Cleveland. And then to like a super diverse uh, neighborhood in Cleveland with my dad's cousin. And then to like Amish country, Ohio, um, where I was again one of the only kids of color. And then through like all of these changes eventually ended up in foster care um and uh, in um a, living in a girls group home in a pretty rough neighborhood of cleveland and so i think i share all of that to say like by the time i graduated high school i had been to 12 different schools i'd lived in the most like rural white conservative uh areas of the country and like the most kind of black, um, areas and like wealthy white areas. And so I feel like because I saw a lot before I even turned 18, I, I just really, I think one of the things that's like served me in my career and kind of put me on the path that I've been on is I realized one, how alike we all were in so many ways, in terms of like what we wanted, like to be seen and to be treated with dignity and to have like a fair chance and to protect our kids. Um, and I also saw sort of like the presence of inequity, right? Like the presence of how unequally those opportunities and that ability to have that life was like distributed amongst different groups. Um, and I also got to be in rooms where there's something that's like uniquely uh i don't know it's it's the worst and the best at the same time, which is like being biracial, living in like an all white household, living in all black households um people say things in front of you that they would not say right in cross racial conversations, and so I Heard the good, the bad, and the ugly about what we think about one another, um, and I think that that was a really unique perspective, also that I I carry forth in in my work, and certainly made me want to do the work that I'm doing now.
1: Hmm. Amazing, Kelly! Thank you so much for sharing, and um, I just really, really honor your just openness and vulnerability in being able to retrace those steps publicly because you know the reason why I ask that is because um you know I think it's there's many aspects of your story that are going to be really relatable to a lot of people and so um and also I honor that a lot of that probably still hurts um or it sounds like it so I'm just sending my love to you there so that has brought you that kind of you took us up to like your like 18 or so years, right? And then um, what, if you were going to kind of walk us through a little bit, your path from there to launching Collective, what was that like?
2: Part two, wild. Um, So I, um, you know, and again, I think all of these have sort of led me to think about how we think about people in the workplace, the judgments, the assumptions that we make about them coming into the workplace, but you know, I graduated uh high school online. Um I think I was a smart kid, but I had a lot of shit going on. Like I was in and out of mental health hospitals from 17 through like 19 um, was inpatient for an eating, pretty severe eating disorder around that time. And so when it came time to go to college, I didn't, I hadn't set myself up, right? Like I wasn't set up to be able to kind of go to some of these caliber of colleges that I think you expect entrepreneurs to have come from. Um, Certainly once I got into the work world in New York, my peers were all from these schools. Um, And I think I had like a really big sense of inadequacy for a really long time of feeling like, oh, I didn't go to these schools. Was it because I wasn't smart enough? But the reality is, is that like, I was dealing with like living in an abusive alcoholic home. I was moving from household to household, um, and really just trying to survive. And so when I got to college and like the other thing is, is, you know, uh, when you age out of the foster care system, you're given a lot of financial support, but what you're not given is a lot of guidance (laughs) from adults, right. Who can tell you like, how do you budget? How do you take care of yourself. How do you prioritize school? And so I was really lucky to get a full academic scholarship. Um, but within a year I had dropped out and was, um, was working as a a stripper, as a sex worker. Um, and I think for me, like going down that path and I did that for three years and I eventually moved to LA, um, to be closer to my stepdad's family and try to get back into school. But for me, I really felt like that was something that I was never gonna be able to get out from under. Like, how do you go back into the regular, regular working world with that sort of piece? And while all my peers were like doing internships and like finishing school, you know, I was living this very different life. And so I definitely think that, one, I, I was really lucky what your upbringing, what has happened to you as a child. Um, and so I did end up going back to school and grad school brought me to New York. <clears throat> and I, um, I think once again, sort of came up against the systemic barriers, right? So I went to grad school for nonfiction writing, wanted to work in publishing and was immediately met with the reality that to get into the publishing world, you needed to have, you needed to do internships and they were unpaid. And I was like, wait, who can afford to live in New York city and take on an unpaid internship? Oh, kids who have parents who are like supporting them throughout grad school and throughout their early years in the working world. And I didn't have that. So I like, while my peers were you know, going to readings, <laughs> like you know, in this private grad school, which I took out a ton of, you know, debt to be able to be a part of, I was working for temp agencies. And I, you know, eventually took on a full-time job from one of my temp agencies and, um, and kind of left that sort of passion for writing and like this this career that I wanted to have behind for like the reality of I need to go out and I need to work and make money and pay my, my rent. And um, I'm grateful for that because then I got into the working world and saw like all the things that you hear about, right. Working in um a finance real estate finance firm and being one of the only women of color and all of them were admins and all the people like that were in the real jobs were white men and being like oh this is what you hear about um and I think then moving into tech seeing it across yet another industry and then being like, oh, this must be a finance issue. This must be a tech issue. I'm going to go into branding because surely the creative world is more embracing of, you know, diversity and and our voices matter there. And like within the first week at this branding agency, I was asked, can we use your hands for a photo shoot? And I was just like, are you serious? Um, And so... I realized like this isn't an industry specific issue. This is like this is like a a world issue. this is a workplace issue. It's a beyond the workplace issue um and I think for me, I was like I can continue to do two jobs, which is to do the job that I was hired for and do this work of trying to build a culture where I could be my voice could be valued where my expertise could be valued or I could go out and get paid to do that thing that I was doing for free anyways and like just do that and I'm I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to to do that amazing
1: Kelly I you know I feel like uh, life It doesn't all make sense in the moment, but I have a feeling that your nonfiction writing, you know, passion will loop back in because you have a hell of a story. And um, I know that all of it will flow together. Um, Okay. And so you went to grad school again, you, you got your degree specifically in like diversity, equity, inclusion work is, um, there's an official title there, but, um, and then you launched collective, right? So can you, uh, just walk us back to kind of like your thought process or was it just like an obvious next move for you? And then, um, it's a two-party question, but also like, how did you get your first client or first couple clients? Oh man,
2: it was, I- There was no thought. I like, it's kind of wild. I think one of the best things about growing up in sort of like chaos and like unpredictability is that you become really comfortable with it. Like now I have to work, I have to work at normal, stable life, but like in some ways it served me because it didn't, I didn't think too hard about it. Right. Like, and I think sometimes we think ourselves into like paralysis and we think like we have to have it all figured out before we can take that leap. Um, and I also understand, like, recognize the privilege of, you know, at the time I felt old. Like I was like, I think I was, I was 32 when I started Collective. And that felt old. Cause in New York, you know, everybody's like, I'm on Forbes 30 under 30. And you're like, if I don't have a company by the time I'm 25, I'm a failure. Um, but I think, you know, there was the privilege of like, okay, I can keep my expenses low by having a roommate and things like that. And I'd been underpaid for so long. Like I wasn't making very much money that I was like, well, I can not make a lot of money here and I cannot not make a lot of money being an entrepreneur. Um, but I think for me, I, you know, I did this program, I went out and, you know, the interesting thing about the DEI space, even five, six years ago was that uh, it was so new. No one actually knew like what a DEI practitioner should be doing. But when you looked at job postings for this work, it was like 10 plus experience, years of experience. And I'm like, wait, nobody has 10 plus years of experience because this field is so new. What do you mean? Um, and... You know, I do feel like instead of getting discouraged, I mean, I definitely was discouraged, right? I was like, man, I want to do this work and there's no roles out there for me. Or they're like super junior and I won't get to do the strategy that I feel like my voice won't um, be utilized, right? Because the DEI, old school DEI firms were very similar to traditional consulting, right? Where you look at their pages and everybody who's doing the strategy work is like, 60 plus has been doing consulting for tons of years, which is great. There's a lot of wisdom there, but I was like, but we're trying to connect with people my age and you all don't know like what we want. Like my voice, I want my voice to matter sort of in this work. Um, And so, yeah, I was like, I think for me, what I thought about was like, what do I have to bring to the table? I don't have years of experience being a DEI practitioner. Okay, duly noted, but I'm really good at branding. I'm really good at communication strategy. And so what, and I'm really good at account management operations. What if I took those things and packaged them in a way that would attract DEI practitioners to work with us? Um, And that's what I did was I was like, okay, this is what I'm good at and uniquely positioned to do. And I want to grow as a DEI practitioner. And so let me partner with people who have been doing it longer, who kind of know better than I do. Um, because they've had that hands-on experience and then support them with the areas that they tend to be weaker with, which was a lot of consultants in general, but a lot of consultants in the DEI space had no website. They didn't know how to brand themselves to like these big shiny companies that they wanted to get work with. Um, and I knew how to do that. And so that's kind of how collective came about. And we got our first few clients actually, um, one, because uh, the branding agency that I was working with had a sister company that did company culture work and they were shutting down. And I went to them and I was like, can you put us in your newsletter that you're sending out to folks saying you're shutting down and redirect that business to us since you're not going to be around? And they were like, yeah, of course. Um, and that was how we, you know, they had this amazing news uh, list of of people, of companies And we got front and center free advertising. And then, you know, I think especially in this space, it's so word of mouth, right? Um, You create good work and then people are like, oh, you have to meet this person. And so that's, that's how. And then I think the other thing that helped was we had a good website. I think people... I don't know. It's like a debate. You know, some people are like, we don't need a website. Everything's happening word of mouth. But I found that having really strong branding and good messaging really helped create credibility when those companies did go to try to look us up. Yeah, 100
1: percent. Oh, my gosh, Kelly. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, Just reflecting back a few things that I heard that I think are really important are number one, like, we all have, uh, whatever our life experiences that we've been through to this point, those are transferable skills to something, right? And maybe, maybe somebody else's like access point or their inroad or their strength isn't going to be the branding piece, but maybe it's the relationships piece, or maybe it's just, you're so badass at what you do, right? Regardless of where you're at, your unique entrance point's point to launching and growing your business is going to be a reflection of your strengths. And I think in your uh, situation, this was one of your strengths and that really um, helped lead things. So just just, I'm a big fan of focusing on our strengths versus like trying to improve our weaknesses and. Uh, In another world, Kelly could have sat there and be like, okay, I have to start from the ground up and I have to like, you know, work for 10 years in this field before I earn the right to start launch my own business. And, um, you know, if we want to actually change systems, we have to kind of think in new ways. And so I really appreciate you um, uh, sharing your journey in that way. So um, let's get to some fun stuff. I'm like trying to think of how sequential we have to go here. Um. I guess just speaking to the heart of the matter a little bit, because I do think that, Kelly, you have uh, really a refreshing and unique POV when it comes to your approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I'm curious if you could share from your perspective, what are a few things that people get wrong about diversity, equity, and inclusion work?
2: What do people get wrong? Um, you know, I talk a lot with folks that we hire about like the need as practitioners to have done our own healing work um, and to cultivate a certain level of like emotional discipline. Um, And I think that what I've seen, especially in like the past few years since George Floyd's murder and like all of these different DEI businesses popping up is like, A lot of folks, a lot of people that do this work, and I don't think it's, like, intentional, but it comes from a place of, like, wanting to sort of be right um, rather than be effective. And I see that a lot in the DEI space is, like, this is how it should be, right? And I think it can be really easy to get caught up in sort of, like, the... Um injustice of it all and like really um letting our emotions guide us to the point where like we're unable to sort of keep have a clear goal in mind that we're trying to hit towards get towards and then like be strategic in how we get there um and I know that sounds you know I think it's whenever I talk about this I feel like ooh like, you sound like a traitor, like, yes, we should be angry, get it, kick it to the white man, but I'm also, like, very mindful of who I am as a human, and as a black woman, and then who I am as, like, a practitioner whose job is to really make things better for marginalized people, and I think the reality is, is, like, uh, what I found to be most effective is, like, not losing the humanity of everyone involved, right? And recognizing how like the sim- the systems at play, white supremacy, for instance, hurt everyone. Like the patriarchy hurts everyone. And I think a lot of times when we are doing DEI work, there's this, people think like, and people think and not for unfounded reasons, because I think there are a lot of practitioners out there who practice this way that like, oh, this is about telling white men that they're bad and like all these people are bad and they need to like fix themselves. And I'm so much more interested in, you know, how are these systems hurting all of us and um, that our collective, like our liberation is like wrapped up in one another. Um, And I think that You know, I use the example a lot. There was one of my favorite workshops that I've ever led. Um, We did this exercise that was all about perspective taking. And we asked people to try on different identities. Um, And, and like, first we had people with those identities kind of share like, uh, like okay what do, what's most misunderstood about being this identity what's the best part about having this identity what's the worst part um and then we had people share like try on those identities and speak from a first person and like talk to that and i think two things that i saw was one we had white men as one of the groups and when they were asked like what's the worst part about being this identity i don't think that they'd ever been asked like how does being a white man holds you back. Um, and I think it's really easy to be like, what, that's a ridiculous question. White men have it made, blah, blah, blah. But when they started to talk about the things that held them back, it was all the freaking patriarchy. Like It was like, I can't have authentic emotions or I will be seen as weak. I have to be the provider for my family. I cannot fail. I cannot take risks because or do the things that I want to, because what if I fail? And I was like, man, those are all the, these are all like part of like a symptom of the patriarchy and, uh, and white supremacy and like of what you think you're supposed to be. Uh, and like to acknowledge the pain of people that we see as people in power or having all the privilege, I think for them, Like, that was, like, that transformative moment. And then they tried on, like, female identity and, like, hearing them talk about, like, yeah, I can't wear what I want to work or, like, people are going to, like, harass me and blah, And they were getting so emotional. And I think it was the first time that they were, like, oh, yeah, this shit is bad for all of us. Like, it's so bad. Um, But I think when you're, like, but when they come in thinking, like, oh, this is about how I'm bad and I'm the enemy, like, we lose the impact, right? Like I'm interested in like, how do I change things for? Sorry, there was a little frozen moment,
1: (laughs) but um, you were interested in how you change things for.
2: Oh, I was saying I am interested in how can we actually change the reality for marginalized people and for all of us really, more than i am in dunking on people and telling them that they're bad or wrong and i think you know sometimes we conflate accountability with punishment and i'm not interested in punishing people i'm interested in creating a world in which we all want to hold ourselves accountable to the highest standards because we want to care for one another um and we want to be cared for and i think that uh, DEI work sometimes can use the same tools of oppression that we're trying to fight against. And I don't find that to be particularly effective. Sorry, mm. that was so long winded. I just went on like a whole soapbox. <laughs> I mean, this is your soapbox. <laughs> this is perfect.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, all that. Okay. Uh, thank you for sharing that unique POV. Cause I think that, yeah, for a lot of folks and everybody, like, I think, The truth is, is like there can and should be a spectrum of approaches here. Right. And and I and I honor the unique approach that you hold. And I think that when you're tasked with running a company that is supposed to support change work, like actual transformation, it you you learn these types of lessons. Right. Um, How it actually transpires is a little bit different than what we might what our what our gut reaction is or whatever. Um, Okay, so. One, uh, one aspect of your identity, Kelly, is your just, Okay, so let me tell a quick story. When I first uh came on with Collective in a full-time capacity, and I had um, you know, my my G Suite set up, I had the calendar and we were as part of like the organizational calendar, and I just thought it was so badass because everybody could see Kelly's calendar, like a, a group of like 30 people in the organization, and we could see when Kelly was going to therapy <laughs> and when <laughs> when you had like time for self-care and when you were taking time off, and and it was such a small thing but like i had never seen that ever before in any other workplace and it gave me instantaneous permission and not only myself but a lot of other people in the org gave us permission to also go to therapy and like put that on the calendar rather and like take time off when we need it oh my mom's is whatever it is like uh put that on the calendar and and so um i've learned so much from you in terms of just your Uh, approach here and your journey with mental health being a part of it and being an advocate for mental health and having to hold this space for yourself as you lead a company and then also have to hold this same space for your employees. So I know you have learned a lot on this journey and um, this is something that's top of mind for a lot of folks who are just dealing with their own mental and physical health challenges, trying to figure out what sustainability looks like as a leader of a company, um, as an entrepreneur. But then also when we hire people and they're like, hey, I need time off. And you're like, oh my God, this project is due. Like, how do you work with that tension? What have you learned?
2: Yeah, Um, it's so funny you saying that about the calendar because I feel like there's sort of sometimes a naivete to my like, behavior. that Like it ultimately, sir, I guess is positive, but it's funny because it would just never occur to me. I'm such an open person. Like it would never occur to me to hide that. And I think everyone should go to therapy. I find there's so much value in it. Um, and I'm really proud of that. I feel like two things that I'm super proud of. That I remember hearing a lot of people talk about at Collective was a lot of people went back to therapy. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually a good thing <laughs> maybe working at Collective drove them back to therapy. But a lot of people took advantage of their benefits um and that culture around mental health to go back to therapy. And a lot of people bought houses while they were at Collective, which was like, huge, right? Like being able to see people sort of meet these big financial goals that they wanted to. And so I am really proud of of that part of the culture. Um, And it's hard, right? I think it is hard to hold that space. One of the things that I found to be most difficult about the journey with running Collective and being a leader is that when you're trying to do something different when you're trying to be a different leader and run a company a different way the reality is especially as a consultancy that's reliant on other companies uh is that you're still constrained in so many ways by capitalism right like i still need to meet payroll i still need to meet project deadlines so that clients will pay us on time and um so that we can have you know pay pay people <laughs> um and So finding that balance, I think in terms of taking care of your people as people, and then also like not being dishonest about the fact that this is still a job, right? And we still have work that we have to get done. Um, And I think one of the things I'm proud of in the more recent months, even though the outcome is not always what I want, right? You talked about we had to do a workforce reduction, is we've really transformed the culture into a high context culture. And what I mean by that is like not just giving people information, but giving them context and education around that. Right. So like I hear the desire for folks to have a four day work week and here's the financial impact of having a four day work week. Um, And here's where the business is today and why this isn't feasible today. Right. And so when I think about, you know, whether it is supporting someone's development. Um, you said in the email, uh, one thing that I was like, ha, ha ha. I actually don't think I did that that well, um, is around hiring people into positions and then giving them the training to support. I actually, one learning that I have is like, I would have been more realistic about with myself and with them about the support that I actually was able to give them based on the financial constraints of the business. Um, and that goes with mental health, right? It's like you, you support, um, you support people in taking the time and space they need. And you also watch the long-term implications on their peers, on the broader community, of how much time they need to take off. And then you have that honest conversation of like, is this environment sustainable for your wellness and for the business? And so like, how do we make sure that the business can thrive and you can thrive? And sometimes the answer is going to be the two can't thrive in conjunction. And that's really, really hard. But I think if you can have honest, direct conversations about that, I definitely think you can guide people to a place of like making the right decision for them and the business um, in a different way.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I do believe that in my experience with Collective, it was this really transformative moment because, you know, the financial situation was very volatile, right? It was a flood of demand. Uh, with the racial justice uprising and then a lot of instability afterwards, right? And so Kelly and the leadership team was really trying to kind of like Keep calm and and you know be leaders and you know keep the company going and and really handle this stuff um, on their own. And at some point, this kind of breakthrough happened where it's like, okay, we're going to be completely honest with y'all. Like like give like she was always you know adamant about giving the full financial picture. But then we got really really real, and that really allowed I think a lot of employees to just contextualize right their situation and their demands within this broader organization that's happening. Um, And I thought that was really powerful. Um Kelly, so one thing that I, I another thing that I actually find just so uh that just stands out to me as one of your more courageous moments and something that I've learned a lot from is um you know in 2021 you know things were really really ramping up you had you were working day in and day out you know for months at this point for almost a year um from the time that like all this demand came in you had grown a team of like 30 in that time you were like working your butt off for many many months and there came a time spring i think of 2021 where you needed a break <laughs> and um and you had to take that for yourself and the company had to leadership had to figure out how to be leaders and, and keep things moving. And I I think that that was just one of the most incredible uh, moments of just holding, like, like, I, I don't think that it was a conscious decision. I'll let you share about it. But, um you know, it's something that needed to happen that in one way could seem like the worst thing ever, but actually, like actually produced like a lot of incredible benefits at the same time in terms of people taking, responsibility in terms of the, the, the weight of responsibility being shifted from not just being squarely on your shoulders anymore. Like it wasn't this like gentle transition. It was kind of like a, a quick one, but it happened. So just wanting to hold a little bit of space because I know that I've, I've talked with people and a lot of people struggle, uh, in this way. And they're like, what if I need to take time off in the middle of running a company or, you know, running my own business. And so if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your story there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely wasn't planned. Um, And I think, you know, a lesson that I really learned is we're, if we want to be different types of leaders, and I think the people that want to be different types of leaders are different types of people. (laughs) We need to acknowledge that we need different supports. Right. And, and, and to be fair, like, I actually think that, you know, mental health depression, anxiety, whether you come into entrepreneurship with those uh, issues or entrepreneurship pushes those issues, like brings on those issues. I think it's a lot more prevalent than we talk about. And so I think this is a good lesson for any company, which is to have a plan in place, right. To have supports. And I think, especially as like a founder scaling a business, sometimes it's really hard to let go and to feel like to let other people help you. Um, you do keep it on your shoulders and I'm very much learning to like, uh, you know, not, not hold it all. Um, that's, that's been a journey for me, but yeah, I, I had a really, uh, I had some stuff happen in my personal life that was that really shook like a lot of my childhood trauma loose. Um, And to that date, I hadn't really known much about trauma. I hadn't really thought about (laughs) I hadn't done like trauma work. Um, And uh, I just like I just something. (laughs) We froze again, fact, Kelly. No, I, my internet completely uh, out, cut out a spectrum for the win. And if anybody's in Southern California, it's the worst. Um, I was just saying that um, I really, really needed to take that time. And I think, uh, I don't know that I would have done it if it wasn't so dire. And so... I'm glad now that I've learned that lesson and like I just got back from a month-long sabbatical in March when I was feeling like burnt out but I know now not to wait until you know this was like a unique situation I think that um what I what I realized and even in this most recent um sabbatical that I took is like if I'm not okay then I can't be a good leader and I'm really not I'm no use to anyone. Um, I have to be okay. And I think it can feel really selfish to be like, okay, I'm going to let everybody sink or swim. Um, and like, you know, I think it's important to model that, right. Which is, we have to be okay. Like we have to take care of our mental health. If we're feeling burnt out, like we're not doing anybody a favor, least of all ourselves. And so, I'm really grateful I did that. But even more than that, because I feel like that was sort of like a moment of emergency where I was like, I have to go take care of myself. I think what I am more proud of and I think that like speaks more volumes is that after that month away, I enlisted in, um, in a part like a intensive outpatient trauma program to really start to like do some deep trauma work around my childhood abuse and neglect. And, um and that kept me in a part-time capacity for months and that I felt like there's always going to be, you're always going to be like, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right time, but we have one life to live. And I like knew that I wanted to be the able to live a life of joy and a life of fulfillment. And that like, if I didn't deal with this and go on this journey that, um, I was really going to regret it. And I think our companies can sort of become like our identity and our measure of success and, I was reminded, actually, this is the best business advice that I have uh, have been given on my entrepreneurial journey. Um, I was reminded by actually a fellow practitioner who shut down her company um, and went on to sort of do other things. She was like, your company is a vehicle. Like, it's not your purpose. It's not you. Um it's one vehicle for living out your purpose or living out your personal mission. And so don't let it become you. Um, And I think that when I could separate my company from me, I realized like, Oh, I have a responsibility to myself to be whole and well, and like cared for. Um, Even if that means I give a little bit less to this, this vehicle over here. Mm. Amazing.
1: Um, you know, I'm reminded often that, you know, I think there's a lot of, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and there's a lot of pressure on us to like know your boundaries in advance and like articulate whether you can or cannot do something. And I think nine times out of 10, you get there on that day and you're like, I can't fucking do this. Like I have to cancel and the worst. Like it feels like the worst thing that it, it feels like failure. Right. And so I say that I think that real liberation feels like failure um if we're really trying to do things differently and kind of depart from like systemic norms it usually um we can't see it in advance we can't plan for it in advance right and so I think there's just so much beauty in that right because so much was born from that moment a lot of people yeah kind of like picked up some workload and like got you know finally got their shit together right um and so uh yeah it kind of goes all around but I think that that's just such an important um, Reminder. And so, in that same vein, we got one more little question topic, and then I'm going to turn it over to y'all um, to ask Kelly uh, any questions that you have. Um, we're centering new money, new money social club members uh, first. So if you have a question, think of it. Um, but okay, so as if that wasn't enough, um times is tough, and times have been tough for. Honestly, I'm in touch with a lot of DEI companies across the board, industry wide. Also, like tech as a whole, like so many layoffs, right? And when when the economy is facing some uncertainty um, and these companies are facing uncertainty, often any type of budget for diversity, equity, inclusion work is like one of the first things on the chopping block, right? So collective faced kind of this really tough situation where they had grown to meet the needs of of demand for a few years and then the demand seriously waned quickly right and so in the past year you've had to make some extremely difficult decisions um to save the company and i'm just curious if you can just share a little bit about that because this is again another kind of like um worst case scenario. It's like the thing that everybody fears the most. It's like you fear failure. And this is, this is kind of what it looks and feels like. And guess what? You're still here. (laughs) And I think that's, that's the real journey. So wanted to just, um, story share on that.
2: Yeah. Oh man, that was, it was hard. The past two years were really, really hard. By the time I took my sabbatical in March, I was like, I need a breath. I just need a breath. I need to sleep all month long. I just want to nap all day. Um, like other people, you know, being impacted by that. Um, but I think that's the reality, right. Is like, we're learning as we go. And like the heads of these big tech companies are learning as they go. Um, and, what I will say that I like am really proud of, I'm proud, I'm proud for the most part of how it went down. I think there were moments where I still clung to like not defaulting to like involving people, being collaborative in the way that we handled it, because you are like, I can't, we're thinking about laying people off. I can't ask them like what do they think? <laughs> do they have any other ideas? Like you're like, I can't bring people into that. That's not fair of me to ask them. But I think that that actually, it's like, it is a a, a, a tactic, like, like it is a way of trying to protect people's feelings and protect the hurt, protect them from feeling hurt. And the reality is like, you can't mitigate people's feelings. You can like bring them into the circle and stand next to them um, when they have these hard feelings because it, it is hard, right? Like there's no shielding the business reality. It was like, if we didn't reduce our costs, we would have gone bankrupt by January of this past year. So we had to, right? Um, And I think things I I learned that I'm proud of, uh, I took a pay cut first, first and foremost. I I haven't seen a lot of leaders doing that, which is so absurd to me, especially the big ones, because truthfully, like I financially couldn't really afford it. But I was like, I cut my salary by 55% and was like, okay, does that help? Wasn't enough, right? Then it was like, okay, I took out a line of credit. (laughs) Um, Is it enough? No, we went to a four-day work week. um, And and we brought people into this process. We were like, okay, we need to cut. Basically, we did a whole big strategy session. And we were like, either we need to drive this much revenue or cut this much or some combination of both. And we came to like a four-day work week, 80% salary for everyone Through the end of the year, still weren't hitting the numbers, and at the end of the day, what we ended up having to do was we had to convert a lot of people who were on salary to hourly, and we did that um, so that they could keep their benefits um, and that we wouldn't cut people off. And you know, the reality is, is a lot. We lost a lot of people. We lost a lot of people, and we said to people, we were like, "Come to us." if you're thinking, if this isn't sustainable, we want to help you try to find something else. Um, You know, and some people came to us and told us that they were looking, some people didn't, some people quit. Peace out, day of, it hurt, it hurt because I was like, we tried so hard to do it the right way. But I think the reality is, is like, you can do all the right things, you can be as inclusive and equitable as possible at the end of the day. Like, it still hurts for people and people are going to handle that hurt in different ways. But the beautiful thing is, is like now our business is starting to pick up and some of those people who we who had to leave and like find other things or, you know, we switched to hourly, we're able to kind of bring back in certain capacities and people have reached out to us and said, if you have any projects, I'd love to like come back and do more work. So, you know, I think that's the best that you can hope for in a situation like that.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Um, as my husband says, who's been in business for many years, and I learned a lot from him. Um, don't. There's only two rules in business. Don't quit and don't run out of money. And <clears throat> y'all didn't quit and you didn't completely run out of money. And so there's just uh, I just I think it's just so important because when folks are at the brink of kind of launching their own business, it's like that that threat of failure is really just looms over them. And I want y'all to know that like, there's not, it's not like a pass fail event. It is an ongoing daily set of decisions that you can make. And it's almost never too late to like, correct, you know,
2: um, and I think that there's yeah. like this idea that like your, uh, business trajectory, like the success of your business is supposed to go like this. Like, it's just always supposed to be getting better. And for a long time, Collective was like that. It was like year over year, we were doubling in growth and we quintupled in growth and now we've gone back down in size and you know what, that's still a success. Cause I think to your point, we didn't quit and we didn't run out of money. So I think if you're expecting that your business success is gonna look like this, it just doesn't. And that I think that's okay.